Now, I'm a fan of a Pinot Grigio. Probably people who actually, you know, like wine and drink wine on the regs. I don't drink anything on the regs. Occasionally, I have a glass of wine and it's always a Pinot Grigio. But mm. I, I would assume connoisseurs would probably go, oh, Pinot Grigio. Yeah, this came out of a can. So be even more disgusted. It smells great, though. Mmm. Grigio-y. <laughs> nice. Mm. So are you going to tell me a story or are you just going to have me chatting absolute crap? Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... Do you want a story? No, I think I'm just going to talk crap. The story's about trains. Oh, now you've got my ears pricked up. I know. Oh, dear listener, I bloody love a mode of transport, me. I nearly cried, actually, when we last time we went to the um, train museum in... National Train Museum in York. Yeah. Because they had the A-class They did, trains. they had a lot of them. I'm going to proper sound like a geekazoid now. Um, yeah, I love me an A-class train. Well, they had the Dominion of Canada. They, they had, did. Um, the Mallard was there. The, that's the record-breaking yeah. train. But they had four or five others, didn't they? It was the it yes. was the biggest, it's the largest amount of A-class trains that have ever been in one place at one time. Yeah, um, and and that that it was quite an emotional moment for me because I really lo- do love those trains. And if anybody doesn't know or doesn't want to Google what they are, it's the train at the beginning of a Poirot episode. It's the ITV. It's the, I, the ITV. It's the, the shorter. Uh, version episodes where they do the full intro the yeah. full art deco intro it's 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 the train at the beginning of the Poirot yeah. episode um but also they had the flying scotsman last mm, time they we did, went yeah. as well yeah because it, it was being repairs, repainted yeah. from its uh wartime colors back to its green mm. it's tradition tradition traditional yeah. colors so yeah so go on what are you going to tell me about trains i'm going to tell you lots about trains i'm excited i wonder whether i know because i do i am a bit of a train geek i don't look like a traditional train geek but i am quite you're probably not i'm not naming any types of trains i'm not talking about the rolling stock it's more about what happened with the train i do name one train okay okay yeah is it thomas and his friends boop boop this story takes place with the reverend no (laughs) Oh, that'd be a great story. That'd it? be a great story. The Rev and his Thomas books and what inspired him. Yeah, got high on mescaline and started talking to trains. And they our talk little about... boy, our little boy, would love an episode on Thomas. He loves Thomas and his friends. Poop poop. Well, why don't you do it? it can be a great. But go with your Rupert the Bear. It can just be loads of happy things from your childhood. Yeah, I love a bit of nostalgia. Me, I just bought a popple. I know. It was Does anybody remember incredibly Popples? expensive as well. It was ridiculously expensive, but oh, the joy it's brought me. I can't even begin to describe. I never had one. The problem with this, darling, is our cold open is now about 16 minutes long. Shouldn't give me wine, Joe. This is what happens. I become chatty and then I become sleepy. Right. Well, let's use the chatty. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. This story takes place. Just have a set. <laughs> Apparently I've had the wine. This story takes place just after 7.30 in the morning of October 8th, 1952. Ooh. But it doesn't start there. Oh. It starts on September the 15th, 1830 in Manchester. Manchester. 
because that was the day that the much-anticipated Manchester to Liverpool Railway was finally being opened. To great fanfare. As part of the ceremonies, the Duke of Wellington himself... Him of boots? Him of boots. Okay. And a number of other dignitaries had been invited for an inaugural ride along a short section of the track in a carriage that had been specially constructed for the occasion. So it all sounds very pomp and circumstance. Yeah, they've gone, right, even our first-class carriages, they're not good enough for the Duke of Wellington. No. We need a special one-off carriage. Is his carriage at the transport, the the train museum? Because they have that beautiful outbuilding with all the... I thought those were the royal carriages. I I don't know that this existed beyond this. It may have been that they just decked out their first class carriages and just, you know, added a bit more to make it super opulent. Well, you can actually get a list of everything's that anything that's there, so... You can check? You can, yeah, you can check. You might, might be able to go and see yeah. it. They may have kept it for posterity, yeah. yeah. Going back to my love of the museum, it's well worth a visit if you've not been. It's brilliant. Now, when I say the Duke of Wellington and all of the dignitaries were on this special carriage... Mm-hmm. Most of the dignitaries was, were travelling in the special carriage. Okay. Because 60-year-old former leader of the House of Commons, William Huskisson, he decided not to travel in the super fancy carriage. Why wouldn't you? Well, he didn't want to accidentally bump into the Duke of Wellington. Because the two men had had a bit of a falling out two years earlier that had resulted in Huskisson resigning from the government and they'd not spoken since. So he was worried that if they did bump into each oh, other... Oh, for God's sake. But it's supposed, to be a, it's supposed to be a nice thing. It is, but he's worried they'll bump into each other, they won't know what to say, it will get awkward, and then it will become socially embarrassing. What, it'll become too British for words? Yes, no Englishman can bear social awkwardness. So he thought, better to just jump on the carriage behind... Wow. ...and just ignore him. That's a very British thing to do. It is. See, I don't embarrass very easily. I don't like social situations full stop. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be ever in that situation because if I was in the carriage, I just wouldn't speak to anybody anyway. But You'd be the only person on the dignitary trolley with a book. With a book. Mm. Or, you know, just a a sign around my neck saying, bugger off. Um, But yeah, I mean, there is nothing more British than the fear of social awkwardness. Oh, yeah. And the fear is real. And the fear is real. However, while the train was stopped to take on more water, Huskerson, he looked down out of his carriage mm-hmm. to see the Duke of Wellington had taken the opportunity to get down from his carriage and stretch his legs up and down along the side of the train, only a few feet away from his window. Ah, uh, must be the sweaty boots. And then the worst thing that could possibly have happened, happened. Oh, no, did they give eye contact? They made eye contact. Oh, God almighty. Oh. And William, he realised that he'd, he'd have to get down and say hello. So he opened... No, you don't have to. You could just wave from afar. No. Or you could do that really British nod. No, he, he thought, well, we've acknowledged each other. I may as well go and speak to the man. So he got out of his carriage, climbed down, and he walked over to the Duke of Wellington. Mm-hmm. He offered him a handshake. And it was gladly accepted. Oh, well, at least they buried the hatch. Yeah, the two of them started chatting like old friends. Mm. And he wondered why he'd wasted the last two years of his life avoiding the Duke of Wellington. Good old frenemies. Yeah. And at this point, William Huskisson, he's probably delighted with the way things have turned out. 
he was worried about an awkward social situation and what's actually happened is he's reconnected with a powerful friend well yeah i mean what a friend what a friend to have good old willy boots but he would have been especially pleased as he'd been advised not to attend the event at all who willy boots no huskison he'd been told not to go under any circumstances why because there might have been a a kerfuffle no because he'd recently had serious surgery and his doctor had advised against anything that might cause him excitement oh my god but he thought no is he prone to heart attack well he's he's not in the best of health let's Mm. say anyway he's happy okay but that wasn't gonna last because almost as soon as the two men had apologized to each other and started catching up on gossip Mm -hmm. they heard a cry from further up the track an engine is approaching take care gentlemen the shout was from joseph locke assistant Mm. to george stevenson who was driving the famous rocket on the opposite line back towards Manchester as part of the celebrations. All right. Going relatively slowly so that everyone could bask in the glory of Stevenson's rocket. It it couldn't really, by by train standards... It It was was going slow out of choice. Okay, well, I'm just going to say, as trains go... Stevenson's rocket was pretty pedestrian. When you look this good, you've got to give people a chance to stare. Yeah. That's what they say. Was it yellow at that point? I believe it was. Okay. Some of the passengers, including the Duke of Wellington, simply climbed back up into the carriage out of the way. Yep. While others chose to cross the opposite line and climb the slight embankment to better view the iconic engine as it passed. You're like, ooh, when will I get another chance to see Stevenson's rocket? I'll go over there and I'll be beautiful view i get that but i think i think you could get a decent enough view View from from in your carriage carriage. i think it's because you can take a few more steps back you get the full vista whereas if you're in the carriage it's coming straight past you isn't it it's quite close Mm. and those windows they were never that wide in the carriages yeah but they drop right down you could literally hang out of them Mm. well so some people are in the carriages some people are on the embankment everyone's safe okay except william huskison because he elected to do neither of those things. Right. What did he do? Have a complete brain fart? Well, he figured that if he just pressed himself up against the carriage, you know, back to the carriage, right. there was probably going to be enough space for the rocket to pass him very safely. Yeah, okay. And he I was mean, the tracks aren't that close. close. No, he was completely right in his assessment. And had he stayed where he was, everything would have been fine. Oh, Jesus. Sadly, Huskisson lost his nerve. And at the last minute, decided to cross the tracks to the embankment. Right. Now, he was apparently a man known to be clumsy. You know, even when he wasn't in a high-pressure situation such as this. Oh, my God. Uh, And flustered as he was, when he started to cross the tracks, he stumbled and nearly fell. This is turning into a Benny Hill sketch. He recovered and jumped back up against the carriage again. Where, to reiterate, he was perfectly safe. Mm -hmm. No need... To, he, he's tried he's had a wobble just stay where you are sir stay yeah. where you are god's trying to tell you something god is stay definitely up. trying to tell you something here but he panicked again <laughs> oh my god and he tried to climb up to the carriage door tried to get into the duke of wellington's fancy carriage oh you shouldn't have been in there in the first place seeing what was going on ahead joseph locke hit the brakes on the rocket but he was by this point too close to have any hope of stopping the engine before it reached where huskinson was struggling with the door latch now, you can imagine him frantically sort of pulling at this door. I mean, the, the image I've got is of this... I, I just imagine a fat man. 
He might be a little bit portly. You know, kind of like portly, out of condition, man with a heart condition. Don't get him overexcited because he's... Well, he's overexcited at this point. His his valves valves are pumping. Valves might burst or whatever. I can just imagine him just pissing around on this track to everyone else's kind of like half-lipped sneer of confusion. What the fuck is this man doing? Well, he was having a rush of adrenaline and when he finally He's did... He's having a rush of blood to the head, I think. When he finally did manage to rip the door open, <laughs> he did so with such force that he overbalanced and was left hanging from the door as it swung out. Oh my God. Directly into the path of the slowing, but by no means stopped, rocket. So he's oh now hanging from God. a door. I all I can imagine is like Tweedledum hanging hanging onto a door and being hit by a slow-moving train. Well, the front of the engine clipped the open door and Huskerson was thrown forwards onto the tracks. Oh, my Stunned God. Stunned by the fall, he was too slow to notice that one of his legs was lying across the rails no. in front of the rocket, which by now was almost stopped. Oh. So it ever so slowly rolled over his thigh. Mm. Causing injuries described as onlookers simply as horrendous. And it must be said, normally the Victorians, they love going into almost poetic detail with gore. So if all they could say was, yep, that was horrendous, you know, it was pretty damn bad. (laughs) Yeah, that's like, uh, however, like 300 tonne, whatever it is, locomotive slowly chugging yeah. over your leg I, I like to think of it as that scene from um austin powers where he's running the person over yeah with the steamroller i mean but you can imagine as he's going over joseph Locke's going i'm so so sorry about that i can't, there's nothing i can do oh there's like sorry. there's some final destination shit in that mm. Like, that is things of nightmares. Oh, yeah. That just slow, Isn't it? inexorable. You know, kind of like all those horrible nightmares you have of not just not being able to run away in time. That's... that's. Well, he wasn't running anywhere from this he point was, on. Oh, no. Huskerson was, naturally, rushed to a nearby... Oh, I don't know. Florist. Vicarage. Of which should have given an indication of how the day was going to end for him. Oh, no. Though he was seen by a doctor... The doctor, all he could do was inform him that amputation would be both impossible and pointless, as the crush injuries had already made his death a certainty. So once you have a crush injury like that, so many sort of toxins start flooding around your system that if you don't do something immediately, essentially, with a tourniquet to cut it off, Mm. then it will box in your liver, it will ruin your kidneys. There's just no way your body's going to continue to function after a certain amount of time. It's amazing what trauma can do. Mm. It just... Oh, my God. On the plus side, though... There is no plus side to that, Joe. On the plus side, although he's in horrific pain and knew he was going to die, there would be just enough time to write his will. William Huskerson did indeed write his will before he died of his injuries at 9pm that evening, with his wife by his side. Because it taken so long for him to die, she'd managed to get the train up from London to be by his side. Oh, my God. Yeah. How did you get here? Train. Why do you mock me, woman? My flappy leg. <laughs> Two massive oh. indents in it. Lying there like a stretch Armstrong. <laughs> That's been overstretched. Oh, God, no. 
No, bad, bad joke. No. William no, Huskisson no. went down in history as the first person to be killed on the railways in the UK. But I know, mine, I'll put my teeth back in and say that again, but by no means the last. No, because as the railway network continued to grow, there were naturally more accidents. Of course. Sometimes fatalities reached the double figures. What, in one go? Yeah. Now, there had been an accident in 1915 involving troop transports that had killed 226 soldiers. Oh, my God. I know it sounds... On the way back or on the way... On the way out. And to be fair, they were on their way to Gallipoli, where the likelihood of dying was near as made no difference, one in ten. So Right, I I know, but I mean... They were going to die anyway, they just died a bit earlier. We went to war, but we didn't even get to the war... Because we died en route. Well, these people were leaving from London to get to the coast and they didn't make it that far. Wow. Mm. 226 of them anyway. However, it was generally accepted that safety on the railways had improved to the point that there could never be a similar scale of accident in peacetime. So in war, everything's confusing. You know, you're having to chop and change what you're doing. You're having to react to stuff. So... There's more yeah. likely to be an oversight. Whereas in peacetime, yeah. you have your timetables. You have everything. Everyone knows where they should be at every time and it doesn't really change that much. Well, I get that, but the the trains are in a shocking state at the moment and they have been for our entire lives, really. Well, all of this preamble... Preamble, if you will. ...brings us to October the 8th, 1952. Mm. Because there may not have been the logistical confusion brought about by the fog of war on that cold autumn morning. However, there was plenty of confusion that had been created by plain old normal fog, which was lying thick over large parts of the country as dawn broke. Okay. In Crewe... Was it a foggy day in Greendale? It was, well, probably. Greendale's... I mean, Pat would have been having a nightmare that morning. A mare. A mare. But in Crewe... The express train from Perth to Euston Station, London, had stopped to swap drivers. Okay. Fog on the 300-mile Scottish section of the journey had led to a delay of nearly a quarter of an hour, which promptly increased to nearly half an hour as the two crews struggled to connect the carriages to the new locomotive that will complete the rest of the journey to London. Why did they swap the locomotives? I don't know. It was just what they were doing. Bobby half a job, yeah. Bobby half a job. Yeah. I would go out on a limb and say that the new locomotive had a full coal bin. It had a f- it was full of water, so it was considered quicker to. Yeah, but you can do that on route. You can fill the you can fill the um, tender. And... Or maybe it was just that they were changing who owned the you know parts of the line because they were moving from oh, Scotland to England. So maybe. it was like, well, we've oh, done. Oh, maybe our they bit. moved to Caledonian. Yeah, you know. So there the probably is a good reason that I just don't know. And you're okay. right, I've failed. The new driver was a man called Jones. Jones Jones? Just Jones. Just Jones. Mr. Jones. And he'd been working on the railways for 25 years. Well done him. Snaps for the quarter of a century. I bet he got a badge. Probably. Well, he was definitely loyal to the railways as he had started as a cleaner before slowly working his way up through the ranks. Because apparently back in the day, there was... There was a route to driver from the lowliest position that you could take. So was he cleaning the carriages or was he cleaning the trains? He was a cleaner. He was cleaning something. And then he worked his way slowly through all the different layers until eventually he became driver. See, I I want to know whether he was a Mrs. Mop or whether he was like 
essentially doing a car wash for the trains. Mm, it's a good question. I, I doubt he was on the carriages. I think he was probably cleaning. I the think that's probably. You know, I mean, back in the fifties, that was probably a woman's job, mm. wasn't it? But to, to get to get to cleaner from tra- to get from cleaner to train driver, mm. twenty one years it took him. Twenty one years. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how how good that is. Well, I'm just saying. I mean, when you're talking about, a, I don't a know career, how many jobs are in between. Mm. Well, there's definitely firemen. Is one in between? Yeah, mm. for sure. And I'm guessing there are others, firemen and others. Well, I'm, I'm sure there'll be like assistant this mm. and assistant that. And well, Jones, he'd been a proper train driver for four years, and he completed the crew to Euston Run over thirty times by the time he pulled his locomotive out of the station that morning. Okie dokie. And he had no reason to suspect that this journey would be any more remarkable than any of the others. Right, but it obviously is, so tell me more. Well, intermittent banks of fog ensured that the Perth to Euston service continued to lose time as it made its way south. This had resulted in their train falling behind the Glasgow to Euston service. Oh, right. So they had another train in front of them. Mm-hmm. And do you know what? It was a slower train. God. Now... On the days when the weather was particularly bad, such as the 8th of October, signalmen would increase the amount of space, or headway, between services to reduce the likelihood of any accidents occurring. Only sensible. Mm. It's good for passenger safety. Mm. But it became increasingly frustrating for Jones and his loyal fireman Turnock, Amazing. who had started his career at a rank lower than cleaner, as he had been a bar boy, or a child who would have to climb into the firebox to clean it each night. Frickin Hopefully hell. after it cooled down. But Otherwise, I... I mean, he is sporting some epic burns, if mm. not. But, I mean, how long would that take to cool down? Yeah, well, it's got to be cooled down, cleaned and re- you know set before the next time. So I'm guessing Turnock not... is now perpetually red, like a lobster. Good old red Turnock. He literally has, like, singed black flesh. <laughs> All bobbly and He can't grow any body hair now. No. No. It's now completely waxed from head to toe. I couldn't imagine a worse job, if I'm going to be honest, being in a small, confined, hot space. Because I wouldn't imagine it would cool down With Victorian men shouting at you. Yeah. Hurry up, child. And then a a swift cuff around the back of the head. As soon as you come out. Yeah. Just just cause for shits and giggles. Drink your small beer and off to bed with you. It's an early start. Oh, that's oh, what a shit job. But every time Jones and Turnock started to make up a little bit of the arrears that had, you know, built up. Yeah. They get too close to the back of the slower Glasgow train. Yeah. And they would be shown a red signal ordering them to stop until a gap had been built back up. So just, why bother rushing? It's a really annoying start stop thing. Because there's that pressure, that time pressure of we need to catch up. Yeah, but if everyone's going slow, man, just go with the flow. You would be a terrible Victorian. Yeah. It's business. No. I told you, I'm built for the 70s. How many times have I told you this? This stop-start progress carried on all the way to Watford. So from Crewe to Watford. It's quite the distance of getting annoyed. (laughs) Where, at around 7.45am, Jones and Turnock received yet another red signal. Oh, for goodness sake. I bet they're livid by this point. Well, it was even more frustrating than all the others because it meant that they would likely now be stuck behind a local passenger train from Tring to Euston. Oh, my goodness. The Tring train joined the fast lane at the next station, Mm -hmm. Harrow and Wealdstone. 
Okay. For the approach to Euston Station. And if it arrived before the Perth Express, then Jones and Turnock would have to wait behind it every single time it stopped to pick up passengers. This sounds like one of those ridiculous problems we used to get given as a child. If this train starts at this time and this train starts at this time... And this train gets stuck behind a slow fucker from Glasgow. Which train arrives at Euston first? Oh. Well, the thing is... I was really crap at maths. Your express train stops at a few select stations. The Tring train was going to stop at every single little siding... Tring! ...between there and Euston. So if they got stuck behind that, it was going to be the most annoying thing. Yeah, it would be a little bit painful. One of them was going to have an aneurysm. (laughs) If not, then the vein would be up on the forehead and the eye would be twitching and tweaking. So they're just praying that the Tring trains also had delays so Uh that they're not super duper late. Because you assume that, despite the fact that they have a really reasonable excuse with all the fog, Mm. they will probably be finding that their paycheck was a little light that day due to the inconvenience that they caused. Oh my God, could you imagine like some businessman from crew getting like proper Victorian huffy on their ass? I don't care that it was foggy. Hang on, hang on, hang on. No, 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 we're not Victorian now, are we? We are. 1950s. Oh, oh no! We're in the nineteen fifties. Sorry, we're in the, we're in the, we're in Queen Lizzie's time. I was still back with the Duke of Wellington. Yeah. <laughs> I was back in the eighties. So that's even 30s. worse for the guy who crawled in the bloody hole, because that wouldn't have been Victorian either. No, that would have been uh, depending unless, on his age. I mean, you may be in, uh, you know, unless unless he was like sixty. What the firebox man? Yeah, no. no I'd, because he was, he'd only made his way up to second in command, so he hadn't been there twenty-one years. So what? You going back to the thirties? Yeah. So wartime. Wartime. Yeah. So he was busy. He was busy cleaning out fireboxes in the Wawa. Oh god. Poor bugger. <sighs> Although to be fair, if there's a bombing raid, you're under a train. True. It's probably quite safe. True. It's still, still, it's still, hot and it's claustrophobic. Horrible. And it's, but yeah, t- totally. I I had a brain fart there, and I just stayed with the Duke of Wellington. Like time. No, we've left the we- we've left welly boots. We're in we're in the modern age. I mean, we're post-war. My mum and dad were born in the fifties. There you go. So you know, and they're ancient. No, so I'm joking. <laughs> Jones finally got the green signal to go through the Watford Tunnel, and he put the pedal to the metal, mm-hmm. hoping against hope that the Tring to Euston train had been delayed, and that he could nip through the station and carry on steaming into Euston without any further delay. Nippy sweetie. It turned out that the train to Euston train was actually running late that morning. Is that good? Is it good? Is it good? Is it good? Well, it's because the prior service had been cancelled. Okay. Meaning that the 13 carriages were already having to accommodate around 800 passengers who were cramming themselves on at every station so that they wouldn't be late for work. God. Oh, no, I'd just call in sick. Mm. Well, with all the extra pushing and shoving... It was taking the station guards a longer time to get the doors closed so that the trains could safely get underway again. I can again. just imagine, like, elbows and knees and feet mm. and back of heads just kind of, like, poking out and then literally trying to shove these body. Oh, no. But the cumulative sort of thing at every station mm-hmm. meant it was getting later and later because it was leaving each station a little bit later than it normally would have done. Yeah, yeah. Not so late, however, that the Perth train was going to be able to make it to Harrow Harrow and Wealdstone first. Oh, no. In fact, by the time the Perth train was thundering down the last few miles of track, 
The Tring passenger train was already sat motionless at the station, patiently waiting for the few remaining passengers to be stuffed into the groaning carriages by red-faced guards. Oh, no. You will get on, sir! I can can feel a disaster on the horizon. Well, you say that, but this is why we have the signals, isn't it? To alert train drivers of what's going on. If they work. Well, the signalman in charge of this section of track that morning was called Armitage. Mr. Armitage. Okay. Which is a dependable name for a dependable man. He's grey. He races pigeons in his spare time and always wears knitted tank tops. His wife, Mrs. Armitage, she always has tea on the table at five. I love a tank top. Mm -hmm. And he was very conscientious about his work. Okay. He had control of three signals on the approach to the station. Yep. The distant signal, Mm -hmm. the outer home signal, and the inner home signal. Okie dokie. Following procedure to the letter, he set the distance signal to yellow, which means caution, Uh and was used to advise train drivers to slow down from their normal running speed of between 50 and 60 miles per hour in preparation for a potential stop sign. Okay. He set the outer and inner home signals to red, which would let Jones know that he needed to stop in order to allow the Tring train to safely clear the station. I love the fact it's called the Tring train. The Tring train. It's very, very, very pleasing to me. Armitage had set these signals at around 8.17am. Jones had been responding to the signals appropriately for the past nearly 200 miles of a journey. Mm -hmm. And he definitely knew that there was a good chance that he would be asked to stop before reaching the station based on the time of day and his knowledge of the timetable. And the fact that, if anything else, he had that Glasgow train in front of him. He'd been stopping and starting for hundreds of miles, so he should have... But for some reason, he passed the yellow signal and didn't slow down. At all. Yeah, it, it it was the straw that broke the camel's back, wasn't it? Well, speeding past the red signal at outer home, Jones again didn't touch the brake, continuing at a steady 60 miles per hour, or thereabouts. In fact, reports indicate that Jones only appeared to realise the danger when he saw the back of the stationary rear passenger carriage oh, of the Tring train. Oh, frickin' hell, right. Though the fog was lifting at this time of the morning, the visibility around the station was reported to be around 300 foot, or just shy of 100 metres. This meant that Jones had about four seconds to react before the inevitable impact. Right. I mean, there's nothing that can be done in four seconds. Well, he did pull on the brake, but at that point, it's a token gesture, as much as anything. Yeah, I mean, he fucked up at the orange light, is what happened. He fucked up. Mm. Big time. Unsurprisingly, the Perth train had not managed to scrub any speed at all. And within a split second, the rear three passenger coaches had been concertinaed into the length of a single passenger coach. Oh my God, with all those because hundreds of people Because two of them just so happened to be the older wooden construction passenger carriages. Oh God. And the whole train was shunted about 20 metres further down the track. Jesus and off the track. Christ. Oh my because God. Because it derailed the trains. Behind the Perth engine, the cars had been jolted off the track and were now lying all over the embankment, the platform and the northbound fast lane of the West Coast mainline. Mm-hmm. In his signal box... Armitage witnessed the horrific smash, hearing the agonised screeching of metal mixed with the terrified screams of the passengers, and he froze for a split second. And while this is an understandable human reaction, it meant that when he went to pull the lever to put the emergency red signals up on the approach to the station on the northbound line, Mm. he didn't manage to change them before he heard the telltale buzzer 
that informed him that the train had already gone past the signals and was approaching the station at speed. (gasps) The train in question was an express heading from Euston to Liverpool Lime Street, meaning that it was likely to be going around 60 mile per hour, just as the um, Perth train had been. Even worse, as if it could get worse, it was a double header. Do we know what that means? Um, I think so. Is a double header a push-me-pull-you? No, that's a push-me-pull-you. A double header is where you have two locomotives at the front connected to each other oh, in front God. of the carriages. Right. So you'd have um, a double header to provide additional power when a single locomotive is unable to hold a train either due to uphill gradients yeah. excessive train weight okay. or a combination of the two so if yeah. you if you're pulling a particularly heavy load you get two locomotives on the front because the combined sort of torque would yeah. be able to get it moving yeah ironically like the other trains we've talked about so far the liverpool train was also running late that morning right. and would otherwise have been well clear of the station before the accident had occurred oh. as it this was- is just like a, a combination of bad luck oh it's a perfect storm this one because as it was, the drivers of the two engines had no time to react when they saw the carnage on the tracks in front of them. Mm. Though, of course, they still slammed on the brakes in an ultimately futile gesture. Uh, yeah, but it's all you've got. Mm. And luckily for the Liverpool trains, the impact didn't cause a sudden stop. Instead, the engines were diverted left, where they mounted the central platform and came to a more gradual stop, albeit destroying a pedestrian footbridge in the process which there were some pedestrians on. Oh, my God. The entire accident had taken less than a minute to unfold. Yeah. I I can imagine. I can can imagine it took absolutely... You know, it's taken longer for you to tell me about it than it actually happened, yeah. Because when I say Armitage froze for a split second, it's because the two trains were sort of... You know, straight past Uh each other in the station. So... Unless he'd have acted instantaneously, mm. there was no way he was going to save that situation, bless him. No. And he's going to be going home to Mrs. Armitage tonight with a haunted in, look in his eyes. In tears, probably. Yeah. She's going to have to be rubbing his back and making his cups of tea for a long yeah. time. Just make him a hot water bottle and a cup of cocoa and just yeah, sit in there. Lying there in a fetal position, hugging a bear. Amongst the uninjured passengers who began climbing out of the wreckage were a few American servicemen who'd been stationed at nearby RAF south of Ruslip. Hmm. since 1949. Okay. They just so happened to be part of the 494th Medical Corps. Of course they are. When the first emergency services arrived on the scene, the Americans suggested that a call was made back to their base so an emergency team could be arranged to help manage the casualties of the disaster. It's quite a good idea. Mm. Now, with no such thing as a crisis plan existing in 1952... (laughs) No. Health and safety was something that was... Coming down the line. <laughs> was it? Uh, the was lo- it? <laughs> Eventually. You remember, we had it before we uh, took back our borders and took back control. You remember those halcyon 20-so years where we actually had health and safety? Yeah, kind of like from about... We, we were discussing this not that long ago. Probably from about 1998 to probably about 2008. Mm-hmm were the heady days of EU regulations. Yeah. Before that, nah. Nah. We remember a good chunk of our childhood where there wasn't regulations for anything. Well, personal responsibility, which I get, but lots of people are idiots. Anyway, the police 
they gratefully accepted the offer and within 20 minutes a team of seven doctors and one nurse arrived to take charge of the scene. Okay. In the interim, the passengers and members of the emergency services, as well as local members of the public, had been working ad hoc to free those trapped and to begin collecting the bodies of those who had died in the crash. And while no one can fault the effort, these people were trying their best to to help their fellow Mm. man. It turned the site into a bit of a chaotic scene where no one knew what anyone else was doing. It was Mm -hmm. a bit of a free-for-all. I can imagine. We need somebody gruff to take charge do we need somebody gruff we need somebody gruff Gruff. okay Uh, that could be a man or a lady we don't have anybody gruff because although the Americans had only sent one nurse to the scene luckily for everyone they'd sent one of the highest quality because Abby Sweetwine an African American woman born and raised in Coca, Florida oh do you know what I bet she's just what the doctor ordered literally she turned up and she surveyed the scene yes she did she begun her career in the first black hospital in Jacksonville because this was pre-1964 so segregation was obviously still a thing in the southern states and you needed a hospital just for black people because they couldn't go in no white hospital yeah I get I get the point Mm. it it just makes me feel a bit sick but go on well she didn't particularly like that either because at the age of 21 as soon as she finished her qualifications Abby joined the military where segregation much more lax Mm-hmm. They even allowed Good. her to off- to offer her care to white people. Oh, heaven for fun. I know. And you know what? It turned out it worked just the same. Who knew? Yeah. Practically everyone with half a brain cell. She served as a number of military hospitals before being given the posting to England. And now, age 31, mm. she was determined to rise to the challenge that the disaster presented. Abby immediately took charge of the situation. Good. Good for her. She set up a triage station on the outer platforms, numbers five and six. This provided lots of seating for those waiting to be seen and backed directly onto the car park and the main road, allowing easy access for the ambulances to take away anyone who needed hospitalisation. See? Boom. Straight away. We've yeah. got, we're funneling people into we're f- one yeah. section that's away from the carnage. Organisation. As each person was presented to her, Abby will complete a quick visual exam and will then either send them on to one of the doctors for immediate triage and treatment. Amazing. Which was up to and including emergency transfusion because they brought blood with them. Oh my God. I know. Go the military. But if they were just suffering from shock, Mm. she would instead provide them with a cup of tea and a cigarette before sending them on the way. Yeah. She's like, yeah, it is terrible, darling. How many many sugars do you got Okay, three, three shots. I'll put in a fourth one. You, you know, it's been that you kind of morning. It. There you we go. It. Here's your cigarette. I'll light that one for you. Okay, off you go, pet. Next one. Come on in. Brilliant. In order to ensure that everyone was clear about who had been seen and what the prognosis was, Abby came up with an improvised system of recording. She used her lipstick to mark each person who had been examined, either by herself or by one of the doctors, with an X so that people were not brought to the triage station multiple times in the confusion. Because if you've got someone with a mild concussion, Mm. it's like, otherwise they're okay, right? You just need to go home, okay? So we're going to send you off with this guy and you mark him with an X because otherwise they might walk back around and go, hello. Yeah. And after after so long, faces all become Mm. very similar. You don't know. If you're trying to process hundreds of people, yeah. you're just like, okay, next, okay, next. So you're not she really looking at them. Took are you? out, and I'm assuming it was kind of 
hot ruby red. Oh, yeah. I imagine a proper 1950s lovely shade of, I don't know, scarlet red lipstick. Mm. Yeah. To, to mark these people. And I like to think, because it didn't specify where that she was just right on the forehead there's <laughs> a big x on the forehead see like i imagine one. no see i imagined on the chest the, the clothes then or maybe it was on the hand mm. i mean i i feel like the forehead's not going to be wiped off as much you know the hand people are wringing their hands aren't they because are they worried yeah. this is the 1950s they're wringing their hands with worry and, and saying dis- gee whiz yeah right okay. the distraught so put it on the okay. forehead okay uh, she also made sure to mark anyone she'd given morphine to with an M so that they would not receive an accidental overdose when they reached hospital. Oh, you see, this woman's got it in. She's got it dialed in. She's on the ball. She's in in control. I'm loving her. The first ambulance left the station within a few minutes of Abby and her doctors arriving on the scene. They continued working throughout the day and late into the night, only finishing processing the survivors at around midnight. My God. So that's a long shift. You're talking... Oh, intense 15 as well. intense hours. Yeah, because that's like, that's processing a lot of people with shock, mm. you know, um, initial trauma. To the backdrop of just hundreds of bodies being yeah, just, removed from trains. I mean... It was not a fun day. No. I, mean, I wouldn't imagine. And by the time she finished, it was likely that Abby Sweetwine needed a little bit more than a cup of tea and a cigarette. Probably a stiff brandy, at least, at the very least. Now, alongside the survivors being looked after, brandy for an American? Yeah, but she was in England. Oh, you th- you're thinking some English constable just took her to one side and went, here you go. Yeah, pulled out some kind of like hip flask. Hip flask of brandy. What a posh police officer this man is. (laughs) I don't know. He twirled his fabulous moustache. This was the 50s. This wasn't, you know, Eugene Hunts of the world that would have like dirty whiskey. Yeah, whiskey. Well, there you go. Alongside the survivors being looked after by the Americans, emergency services recovered the bodies of 102 people who had died in the crash. This number included Jones and Turnock from the Perth engine, who had been buried under the wreckage of the Tring passenger carriages. Oh. It's likely that they died pretty instantaneously. Oh, well, at least they didn't know about it, if you know what I mean. The vast majority of the deaths, over half, unsurprisingly occurred in the rear three carriages of the Tring train. Yeah. Because they were overstuffed anyway. Well, they were I'm, overstuffed I'm th- for three. Yeah, I was going to say, like, over overcrowding made that a bit of an untenable situation anyway i mean and then you just throw you know the compression from the other well, train wonder, if it would have been compressed even smaller it was just the sheer amount of yeah. bodies oh eventually. joe as gross as that is you do wonder whether Acting they like actually saved the other carriage maybe if they were empty would it have just plowed through all three well it could have carried on further into the train i'm saying those back three acted a bit like a spring to just sort of take out oh, the energy. No. Oh, that sounds terrible. Human springs. Oh, that's brought up a little sick. Yep. Oof, right, okay. It was also discovered that although the Liverpool train jumping onto the platform had led to only seven of the passengers dying, double that number who had been minding their own business on the platform were mown down and killed. Oh, God, so it was like 21 additional... Well, you had seven on the Liverpool train and then you had 14 people who were stood on the platform probably going, oh, my God. God, who just got mowed down by a yeah, double so locomotive. Yeah, so like 
just you know with the other train coming along mm. that's an additional 21 people there. oh there were also some people who died on the on the bridge that got totaled by those trains as well wow when taking into account those who died later of their injuries in hospital mm. the final death toll reached 112 making <sighs> the harrow and wheelstone rail crash the deadliest peacetime rail disaster in uk history to this day wow well let's just hope there isn't anything that would come close to that because that's a lot of people it's a lot of people and you just think like that happened just people going to work Hmm. and you know it came after the war yeah when so many lives had already been lost and then you know people you know you wave your loved ones off to work in the morning and they get squashed to death no there were i was reading some of the reports and there was at least one poor bugger who was going for his first day at his new job in london you know he got on the train at tring waved off by his mom in his nice new suit in his shiny suit and shoes yeah and he'd just been made into human jam which was because the mum was apparently still at the station or she might have been hit as well Considering she was talking to the press, I don't think she was. Oh, right, But, okay. you know, imagine that. You you put your kid on a train. I don't think I could... stood I waving... I literally don't think I could talk to the press. This was a different time. The press just ran up to people as they were sort of clutching their dead babies. And like, so, how are you feeling? No, I would have been sick on him. <laughs> Fair but... enough. Now, the triage team, led by Abby, mm. not only processed an estimated 350 people over the course of 16 hours. Wow which is an average rate of one person being seen and treated every three minutes for 16 hours. Go on. And there'll be some There'll be some very difficult... Mm. Well, they have blood transfusions yeah. going on, amongst other things. They'd be yeah. setting bones. They'd be doing all the kinds of stuff that yeah. they needed to do to stabilise people. Because when we say ambulances were arriving, these were just transports. Oh, yeah. You I had mean... to make sure that that person, you felt that person was stable enough to get from where you were to where new medical professionals Yeah, definitely, were. because there was no paramedics back in the day. Well, no, but even more important than how well they did with the triage, this ability to provide immediate treatment to stabilise patients was noted by the fledgling NHS and would eventually be developed into the concept of a paramedic, which became a formal position in 1971. Oh my God. So they looked at this as an example of how important it was First to have aid. medical attention yeah. right there at the start. And they were well, like, why are we sending out these ambulance drivers who are doing their best driving to and from, but they can't, you know... No, they're useless. Well, they can't do anything if in terms of deteriorates. Yeah, in, I mean, do they call it... Are they first aiders, paramedics? No, they're or, paramedics. They're much more than first aiders. They can do quite a lot. No, I, I know that. I know in terms of like a job description, but what would you... Because they're first on the scene, would you call them first aiders or would you call them... Well, they're triage, aren't they? They're triage and stabilisation rather than first aid. Right, okay. They're the... I'm just trying to get my my vocabulary right i think paramedics that their entire job is to get you to the hospital in a stable state that's the mo yeah rather than just first aid i have actually been blue lit you have been blue lit i followed you they went wrong they did go wrong they drove past the junction so i got to the hospital quicker than the ambulance yeah it was very exciting actually um in the back of an ambulance with the blues and twos going. Um, I was, as I'm still here, I'm absolutely fine. Um, 
I had um, a blood clot. A blood clot. Uh, no, I you had actually, several, didn't you? I had lots of blood clots in my leg um, with my first pregnancy with my daughter, uh, and I only found out when the blood clot had moved and blocked um, a, a leg artery. Mm. Um, there was a lot of pain, and there was a lot of pain, and I collapsed in our flat and rang Joe, who didn't tell me what it was, but told me I needed to ring nine 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 immediately. Um, yeah. And then uh, he came home and I got treated by a paramedic. Fun postscript to this. That's why I missed my own graduation. Yeah, because I did. <laughs> and I paid for the cap and gown. It was you non-refundable. Had, it was non-refundable, but I had blood clots in my leg. Yeah, it's fair enough. Yeah. So yeah, that they were part of the inspiration and part of the argument. Wow. For paramedics. Well, he literally saved my life, that paramedic. Mm. He did. There you go. So thank Abby Sweetwine. Oh. Good old Abby. Do you know what? That's really kind of hit home a bit more now, now I've thought about it. The disaster also forced railway companies to reconsider the need for an automatic warning system to be installed in trains. Mm. This system will provide a very clear visual and audible warning that they were approaching a signal that was showing either yellow or red. Okay. The system had actually been developed in the 1930s, but companies had resisted implementing it as they felt it cost a bit too much. Oh, penny pinching. Penny pinching. Well, mm. ultimately, penny pinching doesn't save lives, kids. No. No. Mm. Spend the money, save yeah. the lives. And would you believe, in the aftermath of the disaster, when it came out that the technology already existed, um, the public opinion was kind of overwhelming on what they should be doing. Yeah. Spending the goddamn money, mm. yo. And they, they, they changed the minds and did. Good. As for the railway itself. Yeah. The track was cleared of the 16 severely damaged or destroyed carriages and mm-hmm. vehicles and was open for business, as usual, by 8pm on October the 12th, only four days later. Wow. Mm, because people got to get places. Yeah. Four days. I mean, this is a very apt story, considering like the times we're living in now in the UK. Um, I mean, it, it won't have made international news or anything like that, but we are undergoing like some quite severe um, union strikes on the trains at the moment because of pay um, conditions, conditions um, and just general shittery that's happened and it is stuff with the like, privatisation. The need to do it quite so much. Yeah, essentially, the privatisation of the trains has meant that, firstly, no bugger can afford to travel on train. We certainly can't. We looked at looking. We looked at travelling down to London on the train. It's not cost effective at all um, for us as a family of four to and go down to London. We live on the London. West Coast Main Line. There's exactly. a direct route into London. Yeah, it, and it, you know, in terms of like say. Um, American rail systems and European rail systems. In Germany, nine euros will get you anywhere in the country. Exactly. It's ridiculous. Most European countries, it's relative. It's so cheap. It's We're talking hundreds of pounds. Mm. You know, you don't need to... quid for a round trip. It was, it was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. And that was travelling not at peak times, off peak times, um, and having specific tickets so not even like open-ended kind of like you turn up you get on a train so you get on this train you have to get on that train and if you miss that train you will have to buy another ticket Hmm. you know it's just absolutely ridiculous so yeah it's a very timely story really because i'm feeling for the people who work on the trains i am part of a union proud of being part of a union and Mm. if and when the nurses get called out i'll have me placard 
Absolutely. And, you know, fully support people who get shit on by the fat cats Mm. and the, you know, the people in power. It's not good enough. Sort it out. Anyway, talking about solidarity for nurses. Yes. For her work looking after the injured, Abby Sweetwine was dubbed the Angel of Platform 6 by the papers in the UK. How lovely. She was given a number of awards from local groups for her efforts. And in January 1963, she was invited to a special awards dinner by the Royal Variety Charity at the Savoy in London. Oh, lovely. There she was presented with an engraved cigarette case in honour of her work. Oh. So they gave the cigarettes back. She subbed the British she, people. She subbed. And they gave them they back. They gave them back. Though sadly, yeah. although it was the Royal Variety Charity, mm. she did not receive tickets to that year's Royal Variety show. No! It seems like it was such an easy win. What a slap in the face! Yeah, I know. She couldn't see, you know. I mean, who would it be at that point? Would oh, George Formby God, have been around? God, probably. Oh, she missed the chance to see him. Probably. And, you know, other cringeworthy acts. But, you know, very of their time. Mm. But that's that's a big shame. It is. That's a big shame. I used to love it as a child. I mean, now I find it the most nauseating thing on TV. But back in the day, you know, when I was little, I used to love the Royal Variety. Well, I say she didn't receive tickets. She just didn't go. Maybe she turned them down. She's like, mm, that's no, not for no, me. No, no, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy. Oh, my God. She's fine. You okay? The cat's just literally fought. We have a massive seven foot cat tree in our living room because we have three cats. And Knox has just taken a plummet from the top because she was being silly. Are you all right, darling? It's fine. It's just the equivalent to us falling off this house. Yeah, be right. I mean, it's it's nothing. It's nothing. Hitting every branch on the way down. Abby continued serving with the American Air Force, eventually reaching the rank of Major before she retired in 1969. Wow. She returned home to Florida, where she lived happily with her sisters for over 30 years. So she died in 99. She died in 2009. No. And is buried with full honours at Arlington National Cemetery. Oh, how fabulous. Yep. Oh. So she enjoyed a nice long retirement. Where is Arlington National Cemetery? Arlington is the it's the main military cemetery. So yeah. I'm assuming it's in Washington, D.C. I was going to say, is that in D.C.? That's just... He's got his laptop today, so he's tip-tapping. Arlington National Cemetery is in Virginia. In Virginia. It's in Virginia near Fort Myer. Oh, so... I'm looking at it now, so this is why I'm doing it on the laptop, so I can do things like this. So, yes. Oh, the grave of Robert F. Kennedy's there. Now, it's just, you know... The Battle be- of the Bulge Memorial. Because we're looking at a, a trip to America, I just wondered whether we could go and put some flowers on a grave, but Virginia's a bit of a stretch. No, it's it's Washington. You know, it's near Washington, D.C. Yeah, so, okay. So maybe not. No, we'd, yeah. we'd have to go... Um, from where we're going to be in Boston, you'd have to go past New York, Philadelphia and Baltimore to get to it, so... Right, okay, a bit of a trek for a bunch yeah. of flowers, but okay. Mm-hmm. But still, she deserves them. She does. We're just too lazy. And that is the story of the Harrow and Wheelstone Railway disaster, the largest loss of life on the railways in peacetime in the UK. Well, do you know what, right? I I really love trains and that's made me a bit sad. Do you want me to make you even more sad? No. Because this was the 1950s, which means that if you go on YouTube, 
there is a Pathé newsreel oh, for God's with sake. a plummy Brit of describing the disaster. The over, news of today. Over newsreels of the trains. You can see, and in one of the scenes, in the back at the left, there is a tiny little black African-American woman. Oh my God, is she Abby on the Sweetwine news? Abby is on the news. You can see her on this video. Well, I might... Looking incredibly uncomfortable. I might just kind of like put my hand over the rest of it and, and just see that and just look for her. We will load it up on the Instagram, don't worry. Yeah, because... Well, maybe we could do that thing, you know, a bit like at the beginning of Bond, where they have like the little telescope bit. The little dun, telescope. Dun, dun, That's the barrel wine. of a gun. Dun, dun, Did you not know dun, that was the barrel dun, of a gun? I always thought it was a camera. Is it not a camera? It's the barrel of a gun. <laughs> Because it's got the rifling <laughs> on it. The idea is it's a bad guy's gun and he spins. Why did you think blood came down? Do you think he was shooting a cameraman? Yeah. <laughs> James Bond is like, no press. I'm a secret <laughs> agent, damn it. Well, there's my little innocent mind. <laughs> That's the best. James Bond hates the paparazzi with a passion. <laughs> he hates and he has the a paps. license to kill. He hates the goddamn paps, yo. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week. Got my buddy with me again. My recording pal. Yeah, well, when this one comes out, yeah. we will not be here and we will have not been here for many a day. Because this will be coming out while we are flitting around the small towns of Wiltshire. Yeah. We're off to Wiltshire again. We yeah. used to live there. A long time ago. Well, it feels like a long time ago. In reality, it was about, what, six years ago? Six years. A, a lifetime. Yeah. Ago. A millennia ago. Noxie, why did you just lick my thumb? Why not? Why not? But we'll be able to go and see historical things like Malmesbury Abbey. Yeah, we we did. We used to... Let's just give a bit of background, shall we? No. So, like, <laughs> seven years ago, um, we moved... Well, eight years ago. No, it was bit. seven. No, it was, it was seven years ago in March. Oh, so it's like seven and a half years ago, if we're going to be absolutely pedantic. Eight years ago. We, it's not eight years ago. We moved down south. Well, for us, down so, south. Southerly, yeah. We went in a generally southerly direction, yeah. stuck to the west so coast. On the edge of the Cotswolds and Wiltshire is a village called Malmesbury. Um, used to be the capital way, 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 way back when, 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 yes. when. Um, and it has a beautiful abbey and it's just gorgeous. Mm. Um, and right next door is the Naked Gardener. It is, yeah. yes. I believe he had a TV show. I, I believe he did too. Yeah, the Naked Gardener. So yeah, there. Um, gorgeous pubs. The smoking um, Dog. The Smoking beautiful. Dog was our favourite. Many a Such drinking unsettling food. pictures of dogs as well. Very weird pictures. As Google it because people it's... hadn't seen a dog; they just had one described to them by a drunk. Yeah, by a blind man, I think. Um, lovely little boutique shops, lovely little calves, 
you know, loads of history and a weird house with a... Um, an observatory on top. Yeah. Yeah. That looked like a castle. Yeah, the guy just decided a he needed a tower so yeah. he could get above all the other things. We just built a tower. Yeah, it was called the tower, wasn't it? Yeah. The house was called the tower. Um, but yeah, if you're down that way, well worth a visit. Malmesbury, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we used to live there. So we're going to go and take our little girl who was born in Wiltshire down, down south to see, because she won't remember it. We came back when she was... 14 months old yeah, I was going to say one and a bit one and a bit uh, 14 months old she was when we when we moved back up north so but she's technically a moonraker she is that's what you call people from uh, Swindon Swindon and the surrounding Wiltshire areas um, yeah so we're going to go to there we're also going to go to Tetbury now Tetbury is beautiful also gorgeous little village you just love that shop Oh, God, it's amazing. There's a shop there with loads of things from India because the people who own it live half their time in the UK and half their time in India. India. And it's actually called The Indian Shop. That is actually what it's called. Tepri, The Indian Shop. It is on Instagram. Um, and you How can do buy you things. know, though? How do I know? Because I follow it on of Instagram. Of course you do. Of course I do. Um but yeah, Tetbury, known for its antiques. So it if is. you like a bit of antiquing, I mean, it is pricey because it is a pricey place to live. But um, yeah, gorgeous to walk around there. And a nice, do you remember down by the old railway there, you can do a nice walk. Mm. It's nice. It has loads of um, great Western railway stuff, doesn't it? It does. Old it vintage does. stuff that yeah. they've reclaimed and used. And because we're about to start recording, of course, Noxie goes for a tea. Yeah, she's going for a crunch. Good Captain crunch. Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch. And uh, and then we're going to go to Sirencester. Ooh. On our way back, which has a Roman amphitheatre. And a Yeah, we've been to the Roman amphitheatre and a bank It's just in a Lidl. grassy knoll and it does have a bank in Lidl. But yeah, it's just to me it's just a like a grass bowl. Yeah. Essentially. Good place for a picnic and to wear the kids out because they're like running up and down it, but there's not a lot else there. Well, you've really sold Siren Sester. Yeah. Again, beautiful place to go and visit if you like. Nicky Nacky shops, nice little boutiques. Oh, there's um, you can go on the estate there, can't you, for a walk? We did mm. that a couple of times. That's quite nice. Good if you've got a dog, because they'll let dogs in there. And Fenton! Fenton! Oh, Jesus Christ! Fenton! Um, and then they have the Roman Amphitheatre. Um, and I'm sure they've got something else Romany that we didn't go to. And I don't mean Romany as in Rome. I mean of Roman times um, that we didn't go to. I'm sure they've got something else. They may do. We'll they may do, out. but we'll mm. we'll find out. Mm. Um, so yeah, we'll we're going to go there. So, but that's where we'll be when this episode comes out. So yeah. if you're one of the people who, for some reason, decides to download it immediately, or if you subscribed, bless you. Who um, are you? Yeah. Hi. We want to know. Then we may very well be in Sirencester as you're listening to this. If not... If not, we'll be on the motorway, not. probably at a services, eating a McDonald's Happy Meal, because apparently that's the law on the way home from holiday now. We have to get the kids a McDonald's Happy Meal. Mm. I'm hoping to go for a Burger King instead. You don't get the toy, though. No. But you get real meat. It is.